0: Bible, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning, we're going to go back just to verse or two, verse 25, and then we're going to dive into the new section. There's some really good stuff in here today. Hebrews chapter 10. Let's begin reading in verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more. As you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy? who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified, an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. I know these are heavy words. Let us pray. Reverend Hill, sir, would you please, no, how about this, Reverend Love. We talked about him last week in a good sense, and he, he went ahead and showed up this week, and so... We're going to talk about it more often. Amen. <laughs> Reverend Love, our evangelist, he's in time for a few days. Would you please stand in prayer for our Bible study? Amen. Amen. And we dealt with last week the the three let us, and we talked about how God wanted us to draw near to him. There was a let us that had a relationship with God, a let us that dealt with our lives, and a let us that dealt with our interactions with people. Now, with that as a background, and I'm trying not to go too far back so I have time and we can go forward, he begins by saying, Let's not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We shared with you last week that one of the things that works against Christians coming to church is that sometimes they have a mentality of, I'll come when I need it. And when you think of it in that way, you're really thinking in a very selfish way. It's all about you. I'm going to come to church when I feel I need it. Now, that might not be a bad thing in one sense. When we are struggling, we ought to go to where we're going to get help. Amen? But that shouldn't be the only time we come to church. If the only time you ever saw me, I had my hand out asking for something, pretty soon you wouldn't want to see me. You'd see me and you'd walk the other way. Here he comes again, that begging preacher, always asking for something. He said, preacher, that is you. You're asking for help to help clean the church and doing this and doing that. Well, we're doing it for the Lord and not just personally. Amen? And so there is a reciprocation. So we come to God because we need something from him, but we also come because we have something to give. Now, God is not needy. He doesn't need our money. Did you understand? Do you know that even giving is a gift that God has given us? It's a privilege for us to be able to give. What is it that breaks the the chains of materialism? Better than being generous. And so when we are generous with what God has given us, it's like shaking off those things that want to pull us into selfishness. Well, that that not only applies in our financial resources, it also applies in our time coming to church. If I only come to church because I want to get something, I am forgetting that I am to give. Not just money to God, but time and encouragement to others. I can't encourage anybody else if I don't come. I can't do my service for God if I'm not here. Now, This is important. Watch how it plays out as we go further. They were forsaking the fellowship, and here's the crazy thing, when they needed it the most. Not spending time with other believers in the house of God is a sure way to foster discouragement. Now, I will be quite honest with you. The holidays... For me, it's always a tricky time to navigate. First of the year, it's very exciting for me. Getting through uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas is always a tricky time for me personally. And I would say there are others. We talked about it in the fellowship not too long ago who deal with a certain melancholy, a certain sadness around the holidays. Maybe they don't get to be with the the family that they once were with or they remember fond memories of when they were a child and it's never going to be that way again. And and they they sense a certain holiday blues, a certain sadness. Sometimes they can't be with their family and so they're by themselves, they're lonely or the expectations the world has set for the holidays are so high that nothing can meet those expectations. So there's a natural Discouragement. But isn't it strange that if we're fighting those things, why would you why would you add gasoline to it or fuel to it by not being around the people that give you encouragement? Coming around the house of God, whether it's teasing Sister Ivory about how many steps she has on her watch, or whether it's you know talking to one of the brothers or sisters and just, you know, whatever it is. That's, that's something that, that we enjoy. And sometimes somebody may say something that's just a, that little bit of joy, that little bit of, of excitement that just lifts the burden that much more. We need to exhort one another. To stay away from the house of God is a sure way to foster discouragement because nobody's speaking into you. We need someone to speak into us. Isn't it a little proud to think that you can just do this all by yourself? When God said that we needed each other. You might think, well, if I was out on an island, perhaps so. If you got stranded out there, you could serve God by yourself out on the island somewhere. But we're not. We are an island among those who don't know Christ and those who are on this island, think about it. I mean, Brother Tony probably goes to work. I'm not sure that he's got 27 Christians surrounding him. Probably not. Probably people going in there filled with filthy rap music and, and uh, people cursing and saying this and saying that. And so he's the lone Christian. So when we come to church... And Brother Richard is able to harass Brother Tony, and there's that Christian love that goes flowing back and forth. Man, that's like washing off some of that stuff that we had to go through during the day, amen? Being around and having that, my batteries, I don't know what sister must have found it on the way in, but as she walked in, Sister, uh, sister Saunders handed me a battery. No words, just a battery. Maybe sometimes because my battery's out. I don't know. Maybe she found that. Hey, here, here's a battery, Pastor. Maybe she's, hey, you're, you're, you've been a little bit low recently. You need a charge. Amen? <laughs> Whatever it may be. But spending time, I want you to remember this. Spending time with other believers is a sure way to help you get out of discouragement. And when you are discouraged, you don't feel like spending time with other people. You don't feel like getting out of your house. Some folks that are depressed and discouraged, they don't feel like cleaning up their house. They don't feel like taking a shower. These are all things that happen in in mental illness, and they're all things that happen when sometimes we get discouraged. And so you've got to make yourself, hey, wait a second. Let me get up and do what I need to do. Let me get up and go to church, not just when I need it. But let me remember, there's somebody else that's in need. Brother Ronald Jones, been on my heart recently. Maybe, uh, I think I told you a couple months ago, he had called and said he had cancer and there wasn't a whole lot they could do. And uh, he came to church, I think once or twice after that. And then I hadn't seen him. I tried calling him, couldn't get through. And then this morning... It just came to me to give him a call, and I called him, and he answered his phone, and I found out that they had put him in a, um, a rehab-slash-nursing home. And so this afternoon, I went to see him. I love my brother. I didn't want him to think that he was forgotten about as he's going through these things. And as I talked to him on the phone, he he said, no, I said, are you getting out and about? Because I didn't know he was in a nursing home. At last I had known. He had dr- driven himself to church, had his apartment, everything else. And he said, Pastor, I'm, I'm on my back in this hospital and I'm confined here. People are, are serving me. And, and then when I got to see him today, he was saying, I've been here since a little before, sometime before Christmas. He said, it was horrible pain. I was yelling. He said, they've got the pain kind of managed now. We prayed with them, and, and, you know, I'm not sure. Sometimes you probably think the same way. What do you say to somebody? Do you have the right words? Here's the thing. It's not always your words. It's just your presence. And so when you're able to be there, hey, brother, you're not forgotten about. We love you. We're praying for you. We care about you. He is offered something that some of us will not be offered. Unless a miracle takes place, he knows his days are numbered. Here's the thing. 100 out of 100 people are going to die. We don't know when. And sometimes Christianity, we're a little strange about this. Somebody will get sick and somebody will say, you know what? They're going to get better. It'll be all right. And sometimes I'm not trying to foster Unbelief because God can heal and God does heal, and we, we trust God to, to do those things. But you gotta exit this world sometime. And if you always think, I'm gonna get better, I'm gonna be alright, then you might not always prepare. You might not always get ready. I want to read to you. I read it this morning. Margaret Kim. She knew that her husband was going to die soon. Diagnosis was severe and fatal. And so they got together and they planned his death. Calmly and nobly, they updated his will, met with the funeral director, bought the cemetery plot, purchased the headstone, and put it into place. Her husband said his final goodbyes wrote his final letters, made sure that all his final words had been said. He was ready to die. But first, he wanted to visit his his own gravesite one last time before too much of his strength had left his body. She writes of this. When we visited the cemetery to see my husband's newly laid gravestone, we took a picture of him next to his gravestone. He is sitting cross legged. The gravestone is in front of him, flat. Looking straight into the camera, and in front of him is a flat stone with the legend, I know that my Redeemer liveth. And under it is his name and the year of his birth, with a space next to it for the year of his death. It's a photograph at once macabre, darkly funny, and soberly realistic. He is dying. And he knows it. And he also knows that his Redeemer lives. And that he is soon to see him face to face. Isn't this how a Christian ought to live and ought to die? I got to ask, are you ready? Paul's getting ready to talk about how the count of the blood of, of his covenant, an unholy thing. A common thing. He's getting ready to to deal with them about something that was so monumental. God, the God of the the universe, sent his son and Jesus died. And there were people that counted the blood of Christ as just an uncommon, or rather an unholy or a common thing. Now I wonder, I thought as I read that and studied it, I wondered, do we do that sometimes when we come to church? We kind of just so normal and so, you know, like this. Well, if I feel like going to church, if I don't have something else going on, if I'm really sensing a spiritual need, if I if I uh, have extra time, if I if I feel like I've got enough energy. And we don't realize that God has given us this privilege, this, this, this absolute privilege to come and, and not only to receive from God, but to minister to somebody else, to be ready, to get ready for our death. Because we're going to die. We're going to leave this earth. Man, pastor, that's really dark. Well, the good thing is after we die, we get to go to heaven. We get to be with Jesus. Everybody, Reverend Keckle talks about Everybody wants to go to heaven. Nobody wants to die, right? Let me go on. Whoops. Uh, He said, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. How do I exhort one another if I'm not here? So I have to encourage others by being here. My presence encourages them. My words encourage them. You ought to think carefully about the words you use because you want your words to help somebody. If, if you come to church and all you think about is you, he sat in my seat and, and he let the door hit me and, and uh, he didn't say hi to me and she's wearing the same dress as I'm wearing, all you are thinking about is you. That is the antithesis, the opposite of what Christianity is about. You know, you'd be so much happier if you thought less of yourself and more of others. How can I serve somebody? And then you forget about being served. How can I love somebody? <laughs> we'll teach you later on, Sister Saunders. They're in the back harassing one another. <laughs> She's turning to Sister Moss, wanting Sister Moss to serve her. Amen. So uh, funny what you see from the pulpit. Check this out, verse 26. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. It, it seems to be, look, look what he said in verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. And then look what he says in verse 26. 26, If we sin willfully, do you think that may be connected at all? Do you see it? Not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together. But if we sin willfully, do you think that he's he's putting that together about, you know, when you're not doing what you're supposed to do, like coming to church and serving others and exhorting one another, that's part of the sin that you're committing? Now, when we say sin willfully, you got to understand every sin is a willful sin. Every sin is a willful sin. And I think Paul is going to uh, define it. If we look a little closer, he's going to define it more clearly as we go on. If we forsake our fellow Christians, it may easily lead to our forsaking Christ. Forsaking and assembling of ourselves together. If we sin willfully. If we forsake our fellow Christians, if I'm not serving Brother Tuhig or Brother Love or Brother William, and it's all about me, then pretty soon I'm probably not going to be serving Christ. Do you follow? Going on. If we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. God's not playing around. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy, here it is, Who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified, an unholy thing, a common thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord, and again the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He's very clear. To fall into the hands of the living God is to have resisted his love, refused his salvation, despised the warnings of his spirit, and getting yourself past the place where God can consistently show further grace. Is there a place where God cuts us off? Yes. You read in the book of Proverbs, Stretch forth my hand, no man regarded." When your calamity comes upon you, I'll laugh at you. There is a place where God cuts us off. Now, what does he mean when he says there remains no more sacrifice? He, he gave the ultimate sacrifice, he gave his own son. And if you're going to say, Well, give me something better, boy, what else can he give? If you're going to say, That's not enough. I want something better. There remaineth no more sacrifice. There's nothing else that he can give. He's given the ultimate sacrifice. What are you after? And if you won't receive that ultimate sacrifice, there's nothing else to help you. There is no other sons of God that will be crucified for you to resist Christ. Now, here's the thing. People say, well, I'm not resisting Christ. I believe in Jesus. Well, remember, the devils believe also. It doesn't mean that they automatically go to heaven. Resisting Christ is not just uh, saying I don't believe in him. It may be saying I believe in him but not obeying him. Because if you're, if you're headstrong, if you're stiff-necked, if you're, if you're uh, self-willed, and you pursue what you want and not what God's wanting. If you refuse to do what God's called you to do, you know, we're all called to do something. We forget sometimes. As a young pastor, I'd hammer away. You'd see somebody not doing something, just hammer away at that. And then I realized, well, that's, that's not always God. Present the truth. And I think Paul said, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. If peradventure, God would grant them repentance unto life. And so, you know, you used to hammer where You find somebody doing something wrong, you just preach it every time. And now you teach it and let God deal with them. But it doesn't mean that we still don't believe it. It doesn't mean that if I don't hammer at every service, that somehow you don't have the responsibility to do what you know to do. Whether it be to go soul winning, Tell somebody about Christ, whether it be to, to pay your tithe, whether it be to attend church, whether it be to read your Bible or spend time in prayer or, or not fill your mouth with the, the, the vile cursing and, and the language of this world. Going on. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God will judge. Now, wouldn't you think that it's better Fall into the arms of a loving Savior, than into the hands of a living God. Wouldn't it be better to cast yourself on the grace and mercy of Christ than just resist and resist and to resist? Listen, you—you know—you say, "Well, preacher, you are not some strong leader. I'm not going to hammer you every time you do something. I present it to you, and you and God have to deal with it." And if I don't come to you and say, sister, when are you going to do this? Brother, when are you going to do this? doesn't mean that God's not going to hold you responsible for it. I've unburdened my soul until God tells me to do it again. Now it's up to you. You're the one that has to get along with God and say, God, do I get a pass on soul winning? God, do do I get a pass on prayer? Going on i got to finish the chapter tonight. Verse 42, 32. Now, if, if, let me just give you this real quick. If, if you would talk to somebody, say Crystal knows somebody that is in addiction, and uh, she would talk to them, I, I would think that perhaps the first thing you would try to do is present to them the positive things. Hey, if you didn't smoke and do this or gamble your money away, you'd have enough money to buy food for your family. Hey, how about that? You could buy new shoes for your kid. You could put gas in your car. And maybe you present the positive things. But there would probably be somewhere in that conversation a time where you'd have to say, hey, listen, all these things, your family can be better, your marriage can be better, you can have money, you don't have to be broke and sick and tired, and you can keep all your teeth and, and all these things. These are good things. But then you'd have to say, but listen, if you continue doing this, you're going to die. And so Paul has presented all this positive, positive stuff, but then he lays down the seriousness of it. You continue to resist God, it's a fearful thing to fall into his hands. There's a judgment. Now, he lays that out, and then he he comes back. Verse 32, he kind of puts some ointment on the wound. But call to remembrance the former days, in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of afflictions, partly whilst you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst ye became companions of them that were so used. He said, I want you to remember what happened in the past to draw strength for today. That's important. You need to have. Some some uh, receptacles of of faith, some memories of good things. The psalmist said, I remember when we were on, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, when we were on our way to the house of God. I remember when we were there worshiping him. Those were things that he had stored. You might say, I remember those conference times. I remember those revival times. I remember the time at the altar when God did this. Or I remember the time when when... Nobody else knew, but God answered my question. The church service and the spirit of God moved, and, and I said, God, you are so real. And so when the times come when the devil says, you ought to doubt him, God's not real, this isn't happening, so on and so forth, you can say, wait a second, I remember. He says, call to remembrance. When you had gone through these things, you didn't give up then. He's got to encourage them because they were on the verge. Remember, these are people who were tempted to go back to Judaism. So he's saying, remember where you had continued before? Do it again. Do it again. He said, you were made a gazing stock. They laughed at you. They made fun of you. They called you names. For you had, verse 34, you had compassion of me and my bonds and took joyfully... The spoiling of your goods. Think about that. You took joyfully. They came and robbed you. But because it was for Christ's sake, you took joyfully. You didn't recant Christ and say, you know what, I've changed my mind. You know what, I'll play the game. I'll do this. I'll go along with you. Just don't take my stuff. Just don't take my bank account. Just don't take my 401K. Just don't, don't burn down my house. No, 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 don't do that. It's all right. I repent. I changed my mind. In essence, they're saying that their money would be more important than their Savior. But That's not what happened with them, these people. They lost it, which is probably why Paul was concerned because they understood that persecution was real. Not only would you have names called at you and they look at you and call you a Bible thumper, but you could have all your stuff taken under drummed-up pretenses. That's really a danger today. Man, if you're just trusting in the bank and the government to watch over you, you got the wrong thinking, bub. You got to know that God is in control. I'm not saying it's wrong to save money and everything else, but you got to understand that's not your safety. And if you're looking at a big bank account as that which is going to keep you, maybe that's why so many people committed suicide during the, the, the Great Depression. Those who were rich one day and they woke up and they were broke the next, their money was all, their trust was all in their money. Now that the money was gone, they had no trust, and so they killed themselves. we got to have something better to trust in than money. I'm almost done, really. He said, You took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Our spiritual stock in heaven doesn't go down. We don't have to worry about it being devalued. I, was, uh, I read an article. Uh, Elon Musk, he, he tweeted about, I'm not sure how it's even pronounced, Dogecoin or Doggycoin, D-O-G-E. And when he tweeted about it, it was at a certain price. And the man said, if you had bought $100 of it then... And at the height of it, you would have had $28,000. And now it's about $2,800. But still, I mean, if you had $100 of it, now it's $2,800. you have made a lot of profit. But it dropped tenfold from 28000 to 2800 and you can imagine, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, nobody knows exactly when it's going to drop. Man, if you sold it when it was at $28,000, you are patting yourself on the back. But if you let it get to $2,800, you are kicking yourself in the behind. Because some of that's just a gamble. You don't know. Amen. In heaven, we have a better and enduring substance. If we invest in him and we invest in heaven, it won't lose its value. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence... Which have great recompense of reward. Now, here's the idea cast not away your confidence, don't throw it away, don't let anybody take it from you. And there's a reference to cowardly soldiers. Because what is the shield in the Christian armor? Faith. So cast not away your confidence, your faith. Don't Turn and throw your shield down, your faith down, and run. That's what he's saying. Don't, don't be a coward and throw your faith down. You see, you have to understand, the shield protects us. But if you're holding the shield up, you're probably going to hear the arrows thumping into it. Amen. The crash of maybe a, a sword's coming against it. You're going to be in the battle. The shield is is not just something to put up above your mantelpiece or to carry around to show what a great soldier you are. It's to be used. And in the middle of using it, there's going to be the sound and the fury of war. So he said, don't turn and be a coward. Throw it down and get out of there. Don't cast away your confidence. It has a great payback of reward. Have faith. Here's the thing. Faith is is to be expressed when we first come to Christ. But it's to be continually expressed. And we need not sprint power, we need endurance power. We're not in a sprint, we're in a marathon. So, what builds endurance? Having your strength tried time after time after time after time. Having weight put upon you that you think you can't handle and letting it stay there longer than you think you can hold. And it builds endurance. And so don't stand and say, God, I can't take it. God knows exactly what you can take. He's not a fool. Understand, Whew, God, you have more faith in me than I do because this is hurting. I saw a dude, he was a climber, and his, uh, they had a contest. He was hanging from a pole. Now, have you ever done this before? Hanging from a pole, suspended from the pole for a minute can be very difficult you get two or three minutes, you're doing good. A lot of grip strength you have to have, a lot of forearm strength. But he was a professional climber, so he had a lot of strength in his hands and and in his arms, in his forearms. And there was these other guys, seven of them, and they challenged him. And so the first guy got up there, the climber's hanging, the first guy's up there, and he made it about a minute or so, and he dropped, The second guy got into place, and he made it three minutes, he dropped, third guy, on and on to the seventh guy. That guy hung there, he said, for 24 minutes, he beat all seven of them together. And they asked him afterwards, he said, it was, it was painful. It was excruciating. Yeah, Christianity, isn't, it's not some walk in the park. There's, there's times where it hurts. That brother today, and I'm done. I really am. Just about done. He said, oh, pastor, it hurts so bad. Sometimes it's painful physically. Sometimes it's painful spiritually. Hey, keep coming to church. I'm almost done. Let me finish up here. All right. Verse. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward, for ye have need of patience, endurance, that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry or wait. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them that draw back unto perdition, destruction, that's what that word means, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Real quick, the just shall live by faith. That's an Old Testament verse. That's back in Habakkuk. Habakkuk said the just shall live by faith. It's quoted three times in the New Testament. In the New Testament, each time a different part of the phrase is emphasized. In Romans, Paul quotes it, and he says, the just shall live by faith. That's what we're living by, faith. In Galatians, Paul quotes it, and he says, the just shall live by faith. The people that have been sanctified, made pure, made righteous by the blood of Christ, they are the ones living by faith. And here he quotes it. The emphasis is on live. The just shall live by faith. He said, we are not of them that draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Remember, and I'm I'm done, I am. Remember what Paul is dealing with, people that were tempted to go back. And Paul takes them, he puts his arms around them. He said, brethren, we're not them that go back. He was doing what he had told them to do, exhorting one another. Amen? You know, sister, some of you sisters have been around a long time. Remember, like I said, it shouldn't be, I'm coming to church at the last minute. I'm going to get out here as soon as I can. I know sometimes you have things to do, but your greatest ministry might be on the way down in that elevator, putting your hand, arm around a sister, saying, sister, I'm so glad to see you tonight. We're not them that draw back unto perdition. We believe to the saving of the soul. You know, the devil lies to people. He says, nobody loves you. Everybody hates you. You might as well give up. Nobody's for you. Everybody's against you. Have you ever heard that? I know, yeah, all the time. That's right, William. I know that. We've all heard that at times. And sometimes when you're strong, it's easy to dust that off. Get out of Dodge, devil. But sometimes when you haven't had anybody speak to you and encourage you, it's a little difficult. Maybe that would be the time. Pastor Davis said one time a brother came up, I can name the preacher, I won't, came up and said to him, he said, Pastor, we love you, we're on your side. He said that made a huge difference. Hey, a preacher's wife might need you to say that. A sister might need you to say that. A minister, a brother, a new one of the teenagers going through all the changes that they have to deal with and all the, the peer pressure they have to deal with might need you, some elder Christian, some, some sister, some brother, to say, man, I'm glad to see you in church. Keep it up. Praise God. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to be in church tonight. Thank you for your presence. I've felt your presence here tonight. I'm so thankful. God, we can't teach. We can't, we can't do anything without you. But when you come... You encourage us, it makes all the difference. Lord bless these your people. Bring us all back Thursday night, seven thirty for church. Thursday morning, eleven AM for a prayer meeting for those who are able. God help us to invite, reach out to others to end this year right and start the new year on the right foot. God, we give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.